Good morning, friends. Good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad you're here this morning. How many of you are enjoying your Christmas so far? All right, seven of you. Excellent. We'll get there. So the reality is, it's Christmas. How many of you would say Christmas is not really what you hoped for? There's many new experiences. Those of you who are going through grief and loss, and that's all of us at some point in our lives. But this time of year is not an easy time. This time of year is not easy for those who have accumulated debt over the year, and all of a sudden now it all kind of comes. Uh, the chickens come to roost at this time of year. You're trying to spend even more, and just ignore the fact until the new year, and then you'll join our financial peace university class beginning on Sunday mornings. <laughs> but really, at the end of the day, uh, we kind of have this illusion of the perfect Christmas moment. Uh, my family and I went out a couple weeks ago and cut down our own Christmas tree. And so each year, uh, that is supposed to be the ideal, perfect moment for our family. You've probably experienced this moment when you go out into the woods. Maybe you can cut down your own tree, but there's other traditions that you've got that fit this mold. Uh, and you want to do it exactly the same as you did last year, or at least the year before when it was really good. Uh, but last year maybe wasn't quite right, but we're going to fix it. We're going to make this the perfect memory. And so, like, we posted on Facebook or other social media, like, a picture because of us uh, cutting down our Christmas tree this year. And it looks like it was a great time. <laughs> Behind the scenes, guess what? Like, what you see on social media is not always all that it seems to be. Surprise! <laughs> so us going down and cutting our Christmas tree had a few moments of greatness. It was awesome. But there was a few less exciting moments, uh, most of which having to do uh, with our kids uh, uh, getting ready to go. We didn't get ready to go as quickly as we hoped, and we didn't get to where we were going as quickly as we hoped, and suddenly, uh, between my spouse and I, uh, things weren't as good as the Christmas spirit would suggest that they would be. It's only funny because you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> So for some reason in my mind, and maybe you grew up in my generation, so you do, like, does everyone know who Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen are? Have an idea of who that is? Okay. Uh, in our house, I have three younger sisters, so they did a Christmas special one year, uh, Mary-Kate Ashley Olsen Christmas, and so that story is in my mind of, like, the fake, perfect Christmas. Because if you know anything about Full House, like, everything that Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen do, like, they all have, it all has to come out to a perfect moment. And in this particular Christmas story, you know, that everything happens wonderfully by the end, and the, the guy falls in love with the girl, and the kids are happy, and they get adopted, and then someone wins the lottery. It's all part of the Christmas story. <laughs> they live happily ever after. The reality is, is the reason why we are hungry for the perfect Christmas is because the shadows of actually what heaven will be like someday. This idea of this perfection, this Hallmark card Christmas that we think that we're pursuing, and we do it in what we think is a godly way. We want to put Christ at the center of Christmas, and so then everything will be perfect. But you have to understand that we are still fallen, broken people. And we are damaged, and so we damage one another. And so this, this facade of what we're up against, we have to realize that it's because there's something greater to come. You see, when life's problems happen every other day of the year, we just call that normal life. But when your dog gets hit by a car on Christmas Eve, that's not normal life. That's a Christmas tragedy. 
But really, at the end of the day, those are just normal life type of things. And then holidays bring a lot of extra events. It brings craziness on top of our craziness. And we all know that this is true. We all pretend that that's part of the perfect Christmas moment. I'm not trying to be a Grinch. I get that, like, I am full of holiday spirit, right? I, I really enjoy this time of year. I'm not trying to mess with us on that, but I want us to, to realize that um, really this conversation is about something bigger. This mystical Christmas snapshot is something that is only in our minds because we are hungry for something else. Not just believers, actually the unbelievers as well. There's something in all of us that is hungry for perfection because it is built inside of us and it is something that God has created for us. But at the same time, sin keeps us from that. The bottom line is every man, woman, and child that are on this planet are longing for Emmanuel, the word we talked about last week, God with us. But as we look towards the book of Revelation, as we look towards that time, it's the, the second advent. You see, they were waiting for the Christ child to come. And in the same way, we are waiting for the coming king and for the kingdom age to come. So we, we asked the question last week, why do we believe the book of Revelation during Christmas season? Let's continue that line of thinking. Open up your Bibles this morning. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I'll be in the New International Version for this morning. If you're using the Black Bibles and the Pews, uh, find page 1289. 1289. We get to ask that question. So if we're living this Hallmark card idea of Christmas, and it's actually pointing us to something greater. It's pointing us to heaven. What will heaven be like? Well, I'm glad that you asked. If you look at Revelation chapter 4, chapter 5. And that is where we will truly experience peace and goodwill towards men. The long story short, I'm going to give this at the end of the sermon, and I'll give it to you there again. The long story short is this. It's all about God's glory. We were created to worship. The first page of the first purpose-driven life, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, the first page, first sentence, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's all about worship. And so we're going to tie this week's vision, what we see in chapter 4, into last week's, where we talked about uh, that, that fairy tales start like this. They say, once upon a time, or they start in a galaxy far, far away. But that's not the way that the New Testament starts. The New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, starts with what? It starts with a genealogy so that we can make this connection to real time and real history. Why? Because for us, Christianity is built around, it must be built in concrete, factual time and space for it to be real. That is why Christianity is so focused and so important that Christmas is representative of Jesus Christ. Yes, all of the other things that we celebrate at Christmas are beautiful and they are fun, but do not miss that this is the basis, the foundation for who we follow. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the promised deliverer, then Jesus is coming back to restore his people. See, the Christmas story is real. As the book title said a few years back, heaven is for Heaven is for real. Revelation really matters. So in Revelation chapter 3 and 4, we looked at last week, Christ has just spoken to the churches who are walking through war against sin and suffering. Some of them are thriving, and Jesus is telling them to continue that, to endure, 
But then there are others who are need encouragement to hold fast to God and to preach the gospel because they are getting pulled away, drawn away by the things of this world. So how does God motivate his people to stand fast in suffering? How does God help them to stay firm, stay rooted, stay grounded in him? He gives them this snapshot, a vision of himself. He says, what you're about to go through, what you're going through right now, let me tell you why you're in this battle. Let me show you what you're fighting for. What is the trophy at the end of the day? Let me demonstrate that for you. And it is really the glory of himself, Jesus Christ. He says to them, see your suffering in light of who I am. See your battles with sin in light of who I am. Spread the gospel in view of the glory of God, how great I am. The point of Revelation 4 and 5 for these people in the first century as they are looking at these letters that were written to them by the Apostle John, as they are reading through these things, it is all about the revelation of who Jesus is. And it's no different for us today. So my goal for you today, as we walk through the next few minutes, a few, few chapters here, is that the glory of God comes out. That you see the glory of God demonstrated in a real practical way that feels tangible to you. That it would put a new song in your heart. As we come into Revelation 4, the Lamb is going in Revelation 4, chapter 5. He's going to be taking the book, taking the scroll. All heaven will burst out into a song of praise. And that's the basis of the message this morning. It is a new song. Music is a powerful thing. There's something about music that draws something out of us that's intangible. We, we can live out some different emotions with, with music. The power of music that can move us, can move us, propel us forward. Men, this one is for you. How many of you would raise your hands and say every single time that you watch the movie Rudy, and you see Rudy, Rudy, you run onto the field that you burst into tears? None of you. Every time that I see the movie Rudy, and Rudy bursts out of the film, the crowd goes wild, and there's this swell of music that just erupts something inside of me, and I sob like a little girl. <laughs> Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. It's a beautiful moment. <laughs> maybe it was the maybe the movie Castaway when Wilson, the, the volleyball. Floats away. And again, the music swells and it pulls something out of you. Maybe it was Jack. I'll never let go, Jack. And the score just sweeps in and sucks your heart. Because music is powerful. Music is powerful. Every song I've learned. I love music. I love to study music. I spent some time doing this. And, and every song has a form. Every song has a structure. Every song has a path, a journey that it's going to take you on. And I learned this at the Armed Forces School of Music. Um, I'd never actually heard it explained. I've been playing music in bands and singing in orchestras for a long time, but I never had it explained to me until I was there. And it, and it literally like woke me up to the music that I had been playing for a long time. Well, actually, there was two times that I was woken up at the School of Music. First time, uh, I, I literally fell asleep in the middle of rehearsal, and I woke up to the instructor coming through the band at me, throwing music stands each way because that's the way the military does music. So all of a sudden, I was eyeball to eyeball with a very upset conductor. However, 
The second time that I was woke up to music was I, when the, the path, the, the idea that every song has a journey, a path, an actual structure that we're, that we're going on, this journey that we're going on. And so if you're, Beethoven's Fifth uh, is one of the most famous pieces of music. Da, 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 da. Right? There's this whole thing that is built around the first, uh, is, is this allegro, the nadante, the scherzo, and allegro again. So there's just this journey that it goes on. And those words, they mean uh, it's a fast, uh, beginning of the song is this fast, upbeat tempo that gets you, and then there's the second, uh, the second form, the second part of it is this walking tempo, and then there's kind of the, the, the third movement of it is, is kind of a skip, you skip along, and then uh, the fourth movement kind of draws you in again. And there's, but that that same melody is kind of being played out throughout, uh, more of a folk song style, uh, where we have a lot of our hymns are written this way, where there's just verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. And the melody kind of plays through it, and you have this, this lyrics change. And a lot of times we miss out on when we just, we sing hymns just as we see them in the hymnal, because that was actually designed to grow and to build. If you look at the lyrics, right, a lot of times if there was this overture that was being written over top, that there was uh, a trumpet, or there was something playing this additional tune that just brings it to life. So I'm going to talk about this morning is the song form or the song path that we see in heavenly praise here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. So if you've got your bulletin to there's a white sheet of paper, make your way there. I know it took a little time to kind of build the case here for us, so let's move quickly. The first step in the song form is the intro, the introduction. There's this, come on in, come and listen, come in here. There's the storyteller inviting us into the story. Welcome to the story. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said what? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone was sitting on it. And the one who was there had an appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Now, I know that I'm moving through this rather quickly this morning. But if you take just a moment to ruminate on that, we have coming into the throne room and coming in in all of its glory, all of its splendor, and this rainbow encircling the throne, and just the beauty of the moment that in this throne in the center, all around it, there's these 24 elders and on their thrones, and all the kind of this moment that just kind of engulfs you, and the word awesome comes to mind. You see, the human heart was actually built to stand in awe of an ultimate, excellent, awesome God. You were made to admire God. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. All of those things talk about just being awestruck before a holy God. We're introduced here. We are welcomed in the introduction. We are brought into the throne room. And we see there, at the center of everything, we see God the Father on the throne. Also, you see that this reference there to the seven spirits. Seven being the, the perfect number. And we're not getting into all the details, but the book of Revelation is just grouped in groups of seven. Again and again and again, talking about perfection. 
And really, as we, we look into this passage, you're going to see, if you've ever been to uh, Darien Lake or somewhere else where, where you can sit down and someone will draw a caricature of you. Uh, and, and, and when you get that character back, it's not the perfect representation of you. Actually, what is, what is drawn brings out some of your features, or features you don't love, like you've got a big nose with a wart on it. That's going to be enormously large and that type of thing. Your ears are going to be a little bit bigger. Your jawline's going to be a little bit stronger. But the reason they do that is it accentuates those features. What we see here in this description of what is happening in Revelation 4 and 5 is accentuating the features And so what we see in that those features are being brought out when we see these, these seven spirits or the perfect seven. That is the Holy Spirit there before God. So we see, we see God the Father, we see God the Spirit, and in a few moments we will see God the Son, the Trinity all present. Why? Because it is all representative of the glory of God. He is omnipresent, He is omniscient, He is omnipotent. Secondly, the verse that is sung. The verse being this ancient melody, seemingly, that just kind of ripples across. This, this verse, this melody that starts, those who are songwriters, they often will were tour through the countrysides of different, uh, through Africa, through Europe, they'll, they'll, they'll find these songs that people are singing, and they're not really sure where this melody is coming from. And that's kind of what the song, and that's a lot of times the verse of the song is grown out of that. The verse of the song being holy, 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 verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there's what looked like a sea of glass. Clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in the front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second one an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was flying like an eagle, and each of these four living creatures had six wings that covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns down before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. There's some odd-looking creatures here, some powerful creatures with eyes everywhere and wings flying everywhere. They're, they're these really incredible creatures. But the basics don't miss the basics of what they are doing. Again and again, day after day, forever and ever, they continue to say one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they have been doing so in the past, the present in the future. And don't miss that God's throne is at the center of everything. Everything centers around God at the throne. Everything in the scene, everything in the world, we have to remember that everything, every facet of all that we do, God is at the center. Everything. At school, students, you're working on exams, and particularly college students are finishing their semester, exams are coming, there's all kinds of things coming. All of those things need to center around God. Every subject you study centers around God. Science, math, English, all of those things all center around God. Why? Because God created everything in all things. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
You will not understand your work, whatever your work might be. You may work in construction. You may work as a lawyer. You may work as an accountant. You may work a blue-collar labor job. You might work on the internet and you write blogs for people. Whatever it is, understand, at the end of the day, unless you understand that God is the center of the universe, everything in your work ultimately revolves around Him. You are missing the point of this scene. So picture this. All of heaven, all surrounding the throne. And yet all of heaven also knows it has witnessed this sinful collapse of the world. For centuries, uh, upon centuries really, time has passed. This rebellion against God and Satan continues to assault this world. And there's martyrs in, in heaven, believers who are there in heaven who have been asking, Oh, how long, O oh Lord, will you wait to judge the earth? Just like the prophets used to say. The angels have been waiting for the moment in time that Jesus will do what? He will pour out his judgment on evil in this world. And so all of this is happening around the throne. And in chapter 5, that moment is fast approaching. When you turn the page from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we see the Lord Jehovah sitting on the throne and holding a book, holding the scroll that has these seven seals. And these seven seals, when he tears off the seven seals, the, the, the scroll set in motion, the seven years of tribulation of, of God actually pouring out his wrath on evil in the world. Sinful man that has rejected him, sinful man who's turned his back and done these evil things, God's wrath will finally come out. All of heaven is waiting for this. I would be remiss to talk about the fact that there are certainly three different ways to look at this passage. Three different ways that the theologian scholars have looked for generations at this passage. Those three having to do with the millennium. Uh, that is coming after this tribulation period. The millennium where God rules and he reigns. And so there's the approach to this passage. It's the premillennial approach where Jesus will return before the millennium. So right here in this page turn, you would see the rapture of someone who's coming from that theological sense. Uh, at this page turn, someone who's post-millennial will say Jesus doesn't return until later, until after the millennium. And then there's another, the amillennialism, understanding that there is this present age that we are living in right now, that this is part of a thousand years, the thousand year reign of Christ, and that is why we see the church growing and expanding. All three of those views have theological support behind them. I'm not trying to get into any one of those this morning. What I want to get into this morning is the scene that is right here in front of us. Regardless of your approach to this book, this scene that is played out in front of us Chapter 5, verse 1, will trigger a chain of events into motion. And that's where in the song we get to the pre-chorus. The pre-chorus saying, who is worthy? Verse 1 says, then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth can open the scroll or even look inside it. John's response says, I, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He will be able to open the scroll. Seven seals. 
Remember the story, the story of Excalibur, this sword, this special magical sword, you remember that story? And that sword was the, the sword of the kings of kings, and the selfish king Uther was dying in this mortal wound, and so in that moment he stabs it into a stone and says, if I can have Excalibur, this magical sword, then no one else can. So the other knights, they try to come and free the Excalibur from the stone, and they could not. And Merlin, this magician, he spoke, he says, he who pulls Excalibur from the stone, he will be king. Remember this story? After that, each year, the knights from all over the land, they would come and they would fight, and they would duel it out for the opportunity to go over and try to pull the sword from the stone. And as time passed, the sword of the stone became almost a forgotten legend, but at the same time, there's this, this battle going on until there's this one squire who accidentally lost his sword and he comes across this stone and he reaches and he grabs the sword and it just pops out. King Arthur had the stone sword in his hand. In a similar fashion, the angel is seeking the one who is worthy to be able to open the seals. The story I just described is a mythical kid's story and has nothing to do with reality, but what we're dealing with here as the, the proportions of the end of time, someone is going to need to open this seal. They are looking for it. And the response is silence all throughout heaven. There's no one that has ever lived. No angel, no created being, no person that is worthy to open the seal. So here John, he may not exactly know what's going on in this heavenly scene, but he, he does know, he can, he can seize the, the importance of the moment. That God has this plan that he's about to execute. He's about to go forward with, but no one is worthy to open up the seals. He is to weep in despair at the moment. He doesn't realize that the angel's question was really rhetorical. Because everyone who stands around the throne, every being, every person in the room, minus John, understands that there is only one who is able to open it. There will be no one worthy except for the one. So you see this contrast between one minute of no one being able to open the seal to the next minute someone is being able to open the seal. That moment is this shift in time and space and throughout history from the beginning of time. Men and women have come and they've lived good, moral lives. And they've come and gone, there's been brave ones, there's been strong ones, there's been great ones. And yet all of them have fallen prey to sin. All of them, every single man, every single woman became a slave to Satan in the end. And every year, generation after generation, uh, there was every single man and woman had succumbed to death. But then there came another man, unlike anyone previous. Then there comes a man who is not enslaved to Satan. Who, whose wholesome and pure life actually crushes the head of the snake, Satan, and sin. This man did not succumb to death. This was the root of David. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come, and he has conquered. So as the path of the song plays out, the introduction, welcome, come on in, the verse, holy, holy, holy was sung. The pre-chorus, who is worthy? The chorus starts to come at you and it starts to come out that behold the Lamb of God. Verse 6, that I saw the Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures.
in the Gospel of John, the author, the same author most likely, who writes in the Gospel of John, he's, he's right there talking about John the Baptist who had been out in the desert baptizing those so that they had this outward reflection of an inward change of repent for you shall perish, repent, and get, the kingdom of heaven is at near. And he turns and he looks and he says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins the same fashion John is writing that here. The Lamb, verse 6, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. They presented the prayers of God's people, verse 9. And they sang new song saying this you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign on the earth so how does this lion the tribe of Judah how does he conquer by suffering as a lamb he conquered through crucifixion he was marred, despised, rejected, smitten, broken, afflicted, wounded, oppressed, and pulverized in the place of sinners like you and me. So that all that hide under the banner, his banner, his blood, are safe. He is the slaughtered lamb, and yet we see here, he is standing. Slaughtered lamb is not standing. He is standing before the throne. This lamb has endured death. And the lamb has defeated sin and has defeated death. This lamb who bears the scars that shows of death is ultimately sovereign over death. This is the greatest news in all the world. The lamb who stands there before the throne as, as God reigns is the sovereign Lord of all. And he walks up to this majestic, awesome throne. He walks up to it, the audacity of him to walk up to the throne and take the scroll from the hands of him who sits on the throne. No one in heaven or earth has ever been able to take would never walk in. He just walks up, surrounded by the throne and all of his glory, all the elders, all that are there. When he does so, into a new song. Last week we had the choir sing. Here on my left, you're right. The choir was singing last week and we did this new song. It was a nice song. It has this melody line, He shall reign forevermore, forevermore. And it just builds. The song is beginning to grow. Where's Sue at? Sue McDonald's is conducting. So I, I spent a lot of time on music. I consider getting my masters in conducting, and so there's a lot of different moves that you can use to try to pull music out of people. And so, as the song swells, normally your arms get bigger, you get wider, as you want the song to grow. But Sue did something I have never seen before. I don't know if you realize it. Maybe it's because she works with kids, I'm not sure. But she, for he shall reign forevermore, there's a key change in the song, and she wound up and threw, she went like this, the choir's here in front of me. She said, he shall reign forevermore. And she drew back. And she did, oh, bam! <laughs> and she threw a fireball into the choir. 
And they all said, like that. And they sang. And he shall reign. And all of us who were in the congregation that week just went, whoa. Nice job. Here's the fireball, here's the chorus that the choir sings, the bridge, the anthem that comes and rings across. Honor and glory and praise. Verse 11, I looked and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of living creatures and the elders. With a loud voice they were singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth, and under the heaven and under the sea, all is in saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Every voice sings. If it's an orchestra, every instrument plays. The percussion section is in the back, and they're banging on all kinds of stuff back there. The cymbals are crashing, the timpani is gone, the bells are being rung. This is the moment all creation sings. Forevermore, forevermore. And then we come to the outro. It's pretty simple. Amen. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This huge moment has erupted. And those elders, the living creatures, the elders who began the work of praise and adoration in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, there's proper that they would be the ones who conclude it. And they bring everything back into this last and final response. They say, Amen, and it says that they all dropped and worshiped before the Lord. The whole universe is sublimely represented in this stately, profound, of this lion, the king of Judah, the lamb who stands before the throne. I feel this moment, this, this, this secret moment that they have been able to experience of being there before the throne and all that has been built into that, this disclosure of the great mystery of opening the seals. But let's not miss that there was the one who was able to So what is heaven like? The bottom line, when I think of heaven, I hear a song. I hear a song. A song that begins playing. Have you ever heard someone say that while they were out Christmas shopping, that they were searching for the perfect spot? They're driving around the gallery mall, perhaps. That they were making their way there. And all of a sudden, there's this one spot that opens up right in front of the star. God must love me. <laughs> or they're looking for something that was super expensive, and they, they went out, and all of a sudden, they found that one item. And maybe you've heard two people talking. One person has an illness, they are sick. The other person also has a similar illness. And all of a sudden, the one 
can celebrate because God has taken it away, they say. God has answered my prayers. What about the first person? What about the first person who didn't see that type of healing? What about all the other people in the parking lot who didn't get a parking space? See, heaven is like a song. A song that is playing. Because don't you think that if God can help people find items on sale, that he can deal with something bigger than that? Don't you think God would be at work dealing with earthquakes and dealing with famines and dealing with the awful things of this world that it seems like he's allowing to happen? So how do we reconcile those things? See, I think heaven can best be represented like a song. When you think of God, what is the, the picture? When I say the word God that comes to mind, what is the image in your mind of who God is? Because when I think of God, when I think of heaven, I hear a song. A song that is playing all around us, and it's being hinted at all around us. this approach that God started the world and spun it into motion that just stand back and lets it all happen and intervenes if he wants to help you find a parking space. But we can understand that there's a song being played. There's this song being played that God is acting and interactive at all times with you and with me. So the question is not whether the song exists. The question is whether you are playing in tune As the music swells, as the music grows, as the end times are coming closer and closer and closer, are the notes that you are playing, are they in tune with the bigger story that is there being represented? As the song grows, can you see it? Can you see what the glory of God is being represented? Can you see the orchestra forming? Can you see the mighty beings coming and playing their instruments and taking their seat in the orchestra? Are you in your seat? Are you playing the right notes? Are you playing in tune? Maybe you have a sense like, like this relationship isn't for you. You understand that God is big and you're not maybe connected to Him. God is a God, this massive, invisible God who loves and gives truth and gives peace and gives life. So I can relate to that. That's the type of song that I would want to play. You have a sheep in the orchestra. Are you playing into new song?
us understand the context in which we sing this song. Here is the long story short. It is this. Come and worship. Come and worship. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and come to what? To worship him. Verse 9 in the same chapter, this, after they met with Herod, they heard from the king. They went on their way. And the star they had seen in the rose went way ahead of it until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed by coming to the house. They saw the child was mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. The reason why we need to look at the book of Revelation at Christmas time is to understand that there are so many things going on that we have no control over. God is so much bigger than we realize. He's interacting with us and doing so many things that we have no power over. And that's because He's God. And so as you see inklings, as you hear the notes of this new song being played, may you realize that they are tuning up, that you have a voice you can sing, you have an instrument you can play. Your life is part of that grand orchestra that 